0: My guest today is Jennifer Karis-Brown. I'm really happy to have her with us. But before we get started, I have to say I am so honored and pleased to have been named the uh, Voice America Variety Host of the Month for September th- this year. So uh, I'm very excited about that, and uh, so we'll just go forward with Jennifer being on the show that launches that uh, very honor honoring uh, designation anyway uh jennifer founded j brown legal investigations after she spent years of training under the supervision of a well-respected private investigator and jennifer that private investigator was who ellis armistead yes ellis armistead we all know he's a uh, great investigator and has been all over the country and is based in colorado where jennifer is based um Jennifer primarily focuses on criminal defense cases, but she's developed a specific expertise in conducting investigations on sexual assault cases. She also does federal and state death penalty mitigation, but today she's here to discuss what we're calling He Said, She Said sexual assault cases. So she's licensed in Colorado, and she holds a certified legal investigator designation through the National Association of Legal Investigators. She's written a number of award-winning articles for trade magazines, such as PI Magazine, one of our sponsors, and the Legal Investigator, which is a trade magazine for the National Association of Legal Investigators. She's a past board member and a current newsletter editor, which is a big job, for the Professional Private Investigators Association of Colorado. and. You know, in the private investigation world, trade associations are really critical for exchange of information and staying current on laws and on legal issues. And so some of of Jennifer's trade associations include, besides the NALI, the National Legal Aid and Defender Association, National Alliance of Sentencing Advocates and Mitigation Specialists, and the National Council of Investigating and Security Services, who actually is our legislative advocate in Washington, D.C. So, um, often a claim of sexual assault has no physical evidence and is based only on the word of the person making the accusation. The accuser, of course, claims the sexual encounter is forced and it's not wanted. And, of course, the accused claims it was consensual. Was it or wasn't it? And how do you know? How do you know who to believe? It's complicated. So Jennifer is going to discuss the issues surrounding this highly emotional, very emotional type of case, and provide some investigation guidelines. So uh, Jennifer, uh, first of all, let me let's go back to how you how you got into this business. I know you trained with Ellis Armistead. Did you go to work for him as an employee? How did that happen?
2: Um, yeah, I did. I worked for him for several years and basically just learned his ways of doing investigations which are great and thorough and he's a great mentor and I think so many people in the Denver area can credit their careers to him so I'm grateful I had that opportunity to work with him for so long.
0: That's great and then what made you decide to strike out on your own?
2: You know it was just time. I mean after a while you realize you can get your own clients and do pretty well and I just like having my own hours, my own setup. It's a lot more flexible, so it was, it was definitely time. Mm.
0: Okay. And then did you... Uh, I know Ellis does most mostly criminal defense as well, correct? Yes. And he does federal and state death penalty cases as well, so that's yes. why you yeah. <laughs> ended up going that direction. Yes. Yeah. Okay, so... Um, You've been in business now. Let's see. I started this
2: one in two thousand eight. Okay. So, but I've been doing investigations since about two thousand
0: two. Okay. And then, um, and since you got into the investigation world on your own, Colorado changed their law, and they now have voluntary licensing there.
2: Very recently, yes.
0: Yeah, very recently, and that's a that's a good move because there's only a few states now in the country that don't have licensing.
2: Right, um, and I I hope it continues. I hope they stay with it.
0: Yeah, and I hope actually that Colorado ends up get, having a uh, changing the law to a mandatory. Yeah, uh, they're working license. on that. Um,
2: yeah. I know several groups that are working on that right now. <laughs> yeah, it would make yeah. it a lot easier for you know us getting databases and being able to get records from other places.
0: Well, and besides, there's an oversight. You know, if, right. somebody,
2: if Accountability. somebody makes a
0: mistake. And yeah, exactly. If somebody makes a mistake or they uh, somehow are a bad actor that every profession has, then there's some oversight over that. Right. So, okay, let's talk about these crazy, he said, she said cases. So, so how, first of all, how do you get a case?
2: Well, I get, I have several regular attorney clients and they hire me or they refer me to other attorneys and I, that's how I get a lot of these cases. Um, I stay pretty busy with them actually and I have one going to trial on Monday. Um, So it's, you know, forefront of my mind right now. But the problem with these cases is they are so scary and, and Just to distinguish, I'm not talking about cases where the woman was brutally raped and attacked against her will. I'm talking about a case where the client really believed that it was consensual sex and then later it turned out that she changed her mind or something happened to make her feel differently about the whole event. So Uh we have to go and start figuring out, okay, what happened? What turned it from... Possibly a consensual situation to a crime. Where exactly did it, it turn into a crime? And what so are, are
0: some, oh, go I, ahead. I'm sorry. What are some red flags for that?
2: Um, you know, there there are so many of them. They're inconsistent stories from the victim, and I'll say, well, I should say the accuser. <laughs> They're not always victims. Mm-hmm. Um, they will tell different people different things. Um, sometimes they don't even report anything and it's their friends or family who end up reporting because the family or friend is concerned that, oh no, this has happened and she's not reporting it to the police. So she doesn't report. That's a big red flag. Um, she doesn't go for the SANE exam at the hospital, the, the sex assault nurse examination. Uh Um, if they skip that step, that's kind of a red flag. That doesn't necessarily mean nothing happened, but it just indicates that, you know, she wasn't feeling totally violated and had to go to the hospital. I mean, we all learn as girls in school that when this happens, you need to go get checked out. Don't change Mm -hmm. clothes. Go straight to the hospital. They'll examine you and do everything to collect evidence. And when there's a complete lack of that, that's a big red flag.
0: Um, why don't, Jennifer, why don't you talk a little bit about what the sane exam includes?
2: Well, it, it's a sane exam is conducted by a certified nurse who is trained to do those exams, and what they do is they're theoretically they're objective, but they're a lot of times they're really tied in with law enforcement, so they're pretty tricky. And I mean that that whole topic alone could be an entire show by itself, <laughs> but. Um, in those exams, they they need to take physical evidence. You know, do scrapings, swabbings. Um, they'll use a, an instrument called a colposcope, which could have a camera or even a video camera on it to look inside the woman's look inside the woman to see if there are any visible injuries or um, abrasions or bruising, uh, anything that indicates injury, and and that can lead to. Some kind of evidence of non-consent, but but then there are also studies that show that even injuries can indicate uh, consent as well because they can happen any time. Uh-huh. But they also uh, another red flag is when the the sane nurse doesn't follow all the protocol, and some of that includes taking a verbatim statement from the. Accuser of exactly what happened. Not writing down medical terminology like patient reports this or that, but more writing down verbatim what she says happened. Uh-huh. And they, like I said, they need to be neutral. Um, they, let's see, what else do they do? They will um, check everything. You know, they'll also screen for sexually transmitted infections. Um, they'll look for signs of injury outside inside check vitals everything um, they they're really trained to just be also to just be kind of a comfort to anybody who has been victimized and it's it's one less interview they'll have to do later so it in a way it's a law enforcement step because that way it it's it keeps the accuser from having to go through interview after interview after interview over what happened, and you don't want to keep re-traumatizing true victims. So it, it's helpful for that. But um, they also they take a lot of history from the the accuser and try to find out. You know, has there been other sexual contact within the last seventy two hours, in addition to the you know the defendant in the case. So they're they're pretty they can be pretty helpful and that's a whole area where you want to really examine their reports and talk to them about what went on in in the exam and the demeanor of the accuser. So th- they can be very useful.
0: And I guess it doesn't need to be said that, that one of the things they do is see if there's sperm. Um, oh yeah, yeah. That's collecting yeah, collecting bodily fluids, of course, mm-hmm. yeah. And, and
2: in the you know he said she said cases a lot of times it's there <laughs> so mm-hmm. it's you know like like we keep saying the issue isn't did they have sex but was it a crime did it mm-hmm. was it against her will
0: right right and saints actually stands for sexual assault nurse nurse, e- nurse evaluation um nurse examiner nurse examiner okay yeah a- because it's a different acronym in different states sometimes. So. Yeah,
2: I think it is. It is. Yeah. It probably depends on the state. Okay,
0: so um, so you get a case. What do you do first?
2: Well, the first thing I do, and so much of this applies to any regular criminal defense investigation, but there are a few things to do differently. Um, I'll meet with the attorney and the client, if possible, to find out what happened. You know, give me the story. And I... Th- th- the interesting thing is when I get these cases, the clients tend to have the same story throughout the entire case. Nothing changes. And to me, that's another indicator that he's telling the truth. Um, you know, when clients backpedal or try to over-explain or can't explain too much, those can be red flags. But I look for, you know, the the client's demeanor. And I I think the key thing is they're bewildered, you know, how did this happen? I didn't realize that she didn't want to do this. And so yeah, right. that's a big a big sign for me. And I go through the discovery pretty well. And I will read it and read it several times, take several passes at it, and I start looking at, you know, who was interviewed. And a lot of times, more importantly, who was not. Sometimes it will be Jennifer? a house party. Excuse me, Um, me, let's
0: excuse me a second. Sorry, let me. We need to take a break here. Let's come right back. That was Colorado private investigator Jennifer Brown. We'll be right back.
1: Talk, talk, talk. That's all we do is talk. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at CALI-PI.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the Council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on PIs Declassified. Stimulating talk
0: gets those synapses in the brain inspired really fast.
1: All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com
0: Jennifer Brown, a private investigator, has been discussing sexual assault cases. He said, she said sexual assault cases. And Jennifer, you were just saying that you get a case and you're reading the discovery. Let's talk about what discovery actually is.
2: Okay, yeah, discovery. Um, when a case is filed and someone is accused of a crime, the prosecution puts together a discovery, and that includes all the police reports that were gathered from the incident in question, um, they'll run backgrounds on the, the, the defendant, the accuser, sometimes the witnesses, and it, it's kind of their packet of everything to tell us, here's our case, here's what we're planning on presenting if this goes to court. So that's what we as investigators are looking at to determine where our investigation begins. And the funny thing with discovery is sometimes that's the first thing I get before I ever get to talk to the client or anybody else and they, it always looks so hopeless because it's so it one-sided, it's you know. Yeah. You look at it and you think, oh no, we're doomed. But then you keep reading, you keep reading and you start seeing holes where there wasn't certain, certain steps were not taken where People that should have been interviewed weren't, and and so then it gets better, and you realize, okay, we have a fighting chance here, and mm-hmm. there's a lot to do. So I like to dig in and really take several passes at discovery throughout the whole process, really, because the more things you learn outside of that, the more certain parts of it will start making sense. But, mm-hmm. but yeah, in a nutshell, discovery is all the materials that the DA has collected in order to, to file the case, and that's what they want to use against the client.
0: Well, and, and you know, some people listening here, Jennifer, might be saying, well, how in the world can you I, can you defend those scumbags? What would your answer to that be?
2: <laughs> you know, I hear that all the time, and I, I actually teach classes on this, and my, my goal is, at the beginning, when people are saying, how can you defend that guy? At the end of the class, I want people saying, how can you not defend that guy? Because, just because charges are filed, that doesn't mean that it happened. Just because someone is arrested doesn't mean he did anything. And people don't understand that and it's the ultimate in civil rights is to have a defense anytime you're charged with any crime. So it's it baffles me when people ask, you know how do you defend that scumbag? And it, everyone's entitled to it. It's our cons, it's a constitutional right. It's it, you know, as Americans, even non Americans, we're all entitled to that anytime your life and liberty are at stake. So it's, to me, a, a, I'm shocked when people ask, ask that question, but they do ask us all the time. I know mm-hmm. you've probably heard yep. that question too. So, for sure. Yep, yeah, for and sure. It's, it's it's a duty. I mean, I, I, and I'll admit, I don't agree with all my clients or think that all my clients are innocent, but no matter what they've done, they deserve a fair trial, period.
0: Yeah, and you know, uh, what you said uh, a little bit ago, about reading the discovery and kind of going, "Oh my gosh! Oh my gosh! This is horrible!" And going through, <laughs> "Oh my goodness!" It's all
2: one-sided. Yeah, <laughs> yeah.
0: They really did that, and you're just, you're just astonished. Really, I mean, this mm-hmm. happens all the time. And then you get into the case, and you find, "Wow, this is not what I thought it was." Right, and that's
2: where we come in. We find other people that have different viewpoints on what happened, or they add critical pieces to the events that the police didn't pursue or that they didn't know about. So it's, there there's so many ways to defend a case, and thank goodness for defense attorneys and investigators.
0: Yeah, and um, you've had a number of cases that turned out to be not true, correct? Yes. That, that yes. weren't, that the accuser made a false allegation. Yes.
2: Yes, okay. and that, that's pretty scary that anybody would have that kind of power.
0: Well, not only that, but that the person that's been accused really gets tainted forever.
2: Oh, yeah. Best case scenario, the case is dismissed and they're bankrupt. <laughs> um, yeah. And they also have yeah. that on their record unless they can get it expunged. And worst case scenario, they're off to prison for... In Colorado, there, there's indeterminate sentencing, which means pretty much life, unless you go through all the trouble of going through the counseling and admission of wrongdoing and whatever else they require. So it, it's, it's a devastating thing to accuse somebody of that who didn't do it. I mean, it, it's, I, I see families breaking up over it. I see people going bankrupt. It's terrible. And, and that's, when things turn out well and the the case doesn't get a conviction.
0: Yeah. Yeah, for sure. And and what would you say are some of the motives you've run into? You know, it's it it varies and you really have to look into
2: the the accuser's history and lifestyle and her friends um a lot of times it can be something as simple as she was mad because he didn't call back. It was a one-night stand and she was pissed. Or if if it's a younger person, a teenager, it could be, you know, a parent putting her up for that to try to work a custody arrangement in her favor. Um, there could be revenge. There's also, I, I've seen several instances where the, the woman or the girl had to be was supposed to be somewhere else, but ended up sneaking out to meet up with a guy. And then when the parents or her partner found out, she claimed rape just so she could get uh-huh. off the hook for being somewhere where she wasn't supposed to be. So right. it, it and, and I know there's so many motives. You know, they're attention-seeking um, people that do have terrible reputations. And got it was known again that she slept with this other guy and. Now she needs to rectify that and say she didn't want to.
0: <laughs> mhm. Mhm. And unfortunately, I mean, I and mean, we're all guilty of it, including I mean, including I am. You hear the news, you hear an allegation, and your initial reaction is to believe it. Oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah you and, see it on the news the, all the time.
2: Mhm.
0: Right. And the pendulum has really swung from be, not believe not ever believing women when they made an allegation of sexual assault right. years ago to now believing them almost wholesale,
2: yes, and it's kind of scary to be in that place yeah. Um, it's yeah. yeah, but you're exactly right. It used to be that you know women weren't believed and it, especially if they didn't fight back or anything I mean they were embarrassed and their their reputations got dragged through the mud and it was a big nightmare for them to pursue any charges or a case because it, it, everything would be brought out in court. And so that's why rape shield laws came into, to, into being um, to protect from that. And I think the intentions on that were good. But, again, it, it's kind of swung the other way now where you can't, it, it's really difficult to find out what, um, what could have contributed to this or, you know, anything about the woman. She could be, you know, the most promiscuous person in town and out looking for sex every night, and you can't bring that in if she did something or if she made an accusation. So it, it's tricky to it maneuver around those laws.
0: And that's what the rape shield law covers, mm-hmm. is the background of the, of the alleged victim.
2: Right. Correct. You can't really bring in her background except in very limited circumstances, and any evidence that comes in has to be related to the actual event or any kind of motive or bias, and those are so hard to overcome, too, because you can't necessarily prove a motive or a bias very easily.
0: Yeah, Jennifer, you've written on articles on this subject. and one I have one of your articles, and, and one of the things I was struck by that you said um, that a, a juror might, her, their reaction, hearing the evidence, would react, something must have happened, otherwise why would a woman put herself through this humiliation?
2: Right, and that's a throwback from how it used to be when we didn't have the rape shield laws. Mm-hmm. And it's um, women they were dragged through the mud and so there any juror coming in now they are still thinking of how things were 20 30 years ago well this is going to be so hard on her and she would not put herself through this unless something really happened and they're all thinking it you can sit there in a trial and watch that and think and just look at the jurors faces and they're sitting there like mhm yep we know and it's it's terrible but that that's an old archaic way of thinking now, and I, I think you've noticed this too, but in Facebook and Twitter and everything else, people put everything out there, even bad <laughs> For stuff. Sure. yeah. Yeah, and I, I, I have seen a case where a 17-year-old girl went on Twitter the, the night after an event and said, I lost my virginity last night, and people were, you know, high-fiving, liking, whatever it is they do on Twitter, <laughs> and... Then later it became rape, and <laughs> you know, so it things are so different. And I hope they'll turn around from that because, yeah, some women will put themselves out there because it's attention, and it's it's awful. Uh-huh. So, I, and I I don't believe in trashing the victim either. I I've, I've never thought that was a good idea, and that's not what I try to do. I try to look for anything that's relevant to the case. You know, I wouldn't be interested in knowing if uh, you know. She's a slut just because she's a slut, unless it was really relevant to the case. So it's—I I try to be sensitive too if I'm talking to victims or their friends.
0: Yeah. I, well, and <laughs> you know, there's uh, there's that situation though—the uh, difference between men and women. Um, I don't know how to. I don't know how to put this delicately, but men will oh, say can. she wants it, <laughs> and and maybe she, maybe she's changed her mind. Maybe she says no. Maybe she's gotten in, involved in the situation and now she's changed her mind, and men don't often understand that concept. Right? You mean like during the act? Yeah. Dur- dur- actually during the act. Yeah. During Having sex the woman says, wait a minute, I got involved in this, I want to back out and, of course, it's now, as far as the guy's concerned, it's gone too far and he's out of there. Or yeah. he's not. <laughs> or he's not right. out of there.
2: Yeah. Right. I know, and that's a tough one and I, I think, you know, we are trained that no means no and if she says no, even in the middle of the act, then be done with it. So, yeah, and and that could be the nexus where it became a crime. You know, up yeah. until that point it wasn't but then it was and I, exactly. I haven't run into that situation, but um, it, it, I could definitely see that happening.
0: Yeah, We need to take another break, Jen. Uh, we're okay. discussing he said, she said sexual assault investigations. Back in a moment.
1: The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on P.I.'s Declassified. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com.
0: Jennifer Brown, a skilled private investigator who conducts investigation on sexual assault cases, is my guest today. And we have been talking about all the motives and the dynamics that surround these He Said, She Said cases. Now, Jennifer, tell us what steps you take once once you've read the discovery and you're ready to work up the case. What do you do next?
2: Well, like you said, I'll read all the discovery and I'll make a list of the witnesses that are apparent in there and anything the client has told me, but one really critical piece of the investigation is to create a timeline. And I try to figure out what the client and the accuser have done for the day, the whole day, or maybe even the previous day if it's relevant to leading up to the event. I want to find out where they were, who they were with, um, did anybody use drugs? Drink alcohol, um, just find out anything that happened because you never know what's going to be relevant to the case and I, I'll tell you so many of these cases sort of end up at a party or a gathering where there's alcohol, and uh, that then ends up leading to the, the questionable did the want did she want it or not want it event um, and a great source for that is. Not just the client himself, but friends, any witnesses, bartenders, wait staff, um, neighbors. I mean, there, there's just so many places you can look to find out where people were. You know, I've gone into people's work to ask, you know, did she work that day? Was she, did she leave early? Anything like that. Mm-hmm. So that kind of helps create a grid almost so that you can start filling in with what people were doing all day. You know, what, because you don't know what's going to lead to sex happening and accusations flying later, so that's a really important part of it. And then I also start—I'll um, review the sane exam, the sex assault nurse examiner exam, mm-hmm. um, if there is one. <laughs> Sometimes there isn't, but uh, those are helpful too. Because, um, like I said earlier, the the nurse is required to get a verbatim statement of what happened. So I look for inconsistencies there, what, what was said uh, to the nurse versus what was said to the friends. Um, I'll start interviewing people and try to talk to friends. And it, One thing that's really interesting is when a girl's friends are willing to talk to me and are supportive of the defendant, that is very telling, too, That's and a key, yeah, and that happens, and it's kind of surprising because they don't they they don't want to see this guy go down because she had her own issues, so it's pretty telling as well um i I try to look at things like how long did she wait to report the incident? Mm-hmm. Um, did she report the incident? Maybe she was telling a friend something happened, and the friend. Got excited and called the police or her mom or somebody else, and and that that's also pretty telling too. Um, but but I realize a lot of women who genuinely believe that they've been victimized aren't always in a position to call the police because it's just too hard. But um, that's important too. And you know the timeline, the time frame between when it happened and when the police were called. Um, I try to figure out what happened between the time the event happened and when she called the police and then when the arrest happened, you know, how long did that investigation take by the police and why look into details like that. Um, another thing I like to do is I always, always, always like to look at any physical evidence they've collected like clothing. Um, mm-hmm. you know, I, I've seen a case where they, she claimed that he ripped her clothes off and had forcible sex with her and I wanted to see the clothes. And nothing was stretched out. Nothing was ripped. Nothing was uh, torn in any way. And, in fact, you know when you take off a long-sleeve sweatshirt by yourself, try this after the show, but when you take off your own shirt, one arm stays out and the other is inside out. And people don't realize that. And that was the case in a case I worked on where, The victim says that he ripped her clothes off, and had he done that, both arms would have been turned inside out because he would have just jerked it off of her. But Mm -hmm. instead, one arm was still left uh, right side out, if that makes sense. Um, Now,
0: were these clothes in police evidence? Where were these clothes at?
2: They were in police evidence, and we have a right to look at those, so you might have to ask and beg and keep going up several levels until you get that permission, but you can go to the police station or wherever they keep the evidence and look at it and they'll have somebody hovering over you so you don't taint the evidence and you know, uh-huh. they'll they'll watch you and other times they're pretty nice about it and they'll give you the latex gloves and let you examine things and I look for, you know, any rips or tears or any signs of, uh, you know, clothes being forcibly removed. Um, it, I mean, there are just a lot of clues there. You know, what, should, what, Condition the clothes
0: are in. Um, also, well, you talk. Excuse me. You talk about uh, a situation where they cut out a section of the carpet. You want to talk about that case?
2: Yes. This this was so appalling. Um, they the, the the accuser said he. This is the same case where he ripped her. He ripped her clothes off and then forced her down on the carpet in her living room to have sex and. When the police came, they cut this four-by-four section of carpet out of the living room and took it away. And they sent it to the Colorado Bureau of Investigation, but they never tested it. And so what they did is the district attorney presented this piece of carpet in court that had stains on it. Well, the woman had two children and pets, so I don't know of any carpet that isn't stained with something, you know, food, milk. Kool Aid, anything, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. and um, they paraded this piece of carpet in and tried to present that as evidence. And I, I don't know to this day how it was allowed, but you know the jury is just sitting there ooing and aahing over this stained carpet, and <laughs> it it was it, it was hard for me. Not I'm not an attorney, but I wanted to jump up and yell objection. You know, it was just so yeah. uh, so unbelievable to me. And well, and they did
0: it with such drama, rolling it in exactly. on the card. It was they brought it pretty, in it was, on a
2: card, and the DA put <laughs> gloves on and had another deputy standing there to, to guard it. And, you know, it was just really ridiculous. And, and oh, it was all bagged and tagged with all the chain of evidence stickers. But, but even the, the Colorado Bureau of Investigations person that testified even said, you know, no, we never tested that and didn't look at it and... You know, I think they had been given directions just to find out, was he there? And, yeah, they found his hat there, and there was a hair there. You know, the question, and that was never in question, and it wasn't something we were contesting. So Mm -hmm. they made a big deal out of this piece of carpet that was never even tested. And what happened to that case? You know, unfortunately, and, and it killed me to this day, he got convicted and this was a small town jury and they were easily impressed by this non evidence and there was a, there were other things too because they brought in um a bathrobe that she had worn and it had also not been tested but they brought that in as evidence and it it was just a nightmare and, and actually that case is uh going through the appeals process right now and i really really hope that it gets overturned because it's just it's still a case i lose sleep over to this day
0: and you and, evidently don't believe the the accused was responsible for the crime is that what i'm hearing
2: right or are not, you not at all sh- it was consensual and in this case uh, unfortunately the the client was married and i think this jury convicted him because he cheated on his wife not because he raped this woman mm-hmm. so it was it was really ugly and it was um you know a less sophisticated jury that this this case was a really big deal in town. I mean, it took days and days and days to select a jury because everybody knew everybody. And so it was, it kind of just stopped everything. That yeah, were, that's, uh,
0: that's the problem with having a jury of your peers, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah. So... When they are all your peers, yeah. Yeah. So, um, so what do you... So when you have that kind of a situation before you go to trial, you have that kind of a situation. Could your was there a situation where your attorney decided not to have the the evidence tested himself or her, herself? No, and you know in this case, it, it, again, it wasn't relevant because we
2: weren't saying that he wasn't there. And right. so, yeah. had his bodily fluids been there that's fine you know we never argued otherwise so that wasn't even an issue and it and i and i still don't understand why a they were allowed to present it when it hadn't been tested or b why the lab didn't test it to begin with if that was an issue which apparently it wasn't but they were able to get that in as evidence anyway and you know they we do so many pre trial hearings to try to keep evidence like that out but just weren't successful this time around. So it, it was just one of those
0: travesties
2: where and, the judge dropped the ball.
0: And was there evidence of injury on her in that case? No, there wasn't. Um, she
2: did do the same exam a day or two later, and I think she might, if memory serves, I think she had one little bruise, but it was in an area where it's in that range of it could have been consensual. Uh-huh. And that there were no other scratches or signs of force or anything, and and not on her, not at the house, not in you know the furniture, nothing. There was no sign of force anywhere. So it 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 was just a case where I think it, she decided later, ooh, I shouldn't have done that, and decided it to. Call the police, and it didn't help that her sister was dating a police officer at the time. And so, of course, once it got out of her hands, it was off and running. Right. And what do
0: you think her motive was? You know, in this case,
2: I think she was dating somebody else, and I don't know if it was a matter of him finding out that she slept with this guy or if she was tired of being known as the town slut. Um, she was known as that, even though that was never going to come in. Um, But I think she was tired of people talking about her in that way. And so once everybody knew this and the charges were already filed and it was a big deal and it divided up friends and people in town, um, I I think she just let it continue so that she would be off the hook.
0: And there is an exception to the rape shield law that covers... Um, false allegations. Did that, was yeah. that able to be implemented in this um, case? It,
2: it wasn't in this case because she had never filed any charges before or had any false allegations. So, I mean, had she complained before and it turned out to be false, that would have been huge for the defense. But that hadn't happened before. And But that is a great exception, and that's one of the first things I look for is um, other cases or um you know, if, if, if it's happened before. And in the case that I have going to trial on Monday, the, the alleged victim actually told two witnesses two different things about cases she's done before. So hopefully that information is going to be allowed to come in and, and show that she has a tendency to make claims that didn't
0: happen. And you would bring those witnesses in to testify?
2: Yes. Okay. Yeah, they are going to come in, yeah.
0: Yeah. Okay. Uh, We're going to take another break. More to come with Colorado Private Investigator Jennifer Brown.
1: News. 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 Opinion. Opinion. Your voice counts. Call toll-free 1-866-472-5787 1-866-472-5787 VoiceAmerica.com On PIs Declassified. Streaming live. The leader in Internet Talk Radio. VoiceAmerica.com. You're listening to PIs Declassified with Francie Kaler. You can call into the program. We'll take questions and comments at 1 866 472 5788. That's 1-866-472-5788. You can also email your question to Francie. Send it to francie at pisdeclassified.com. Now, here's Francie Kaler.
0: I'm back with today's guest, Jennifer Brown. Jennifer does uh, lots of sexual assault cases, and some of them are based just on an allegation. So, Jennifer, why don't you kind of summarize some bullet points for us on steps for investigation on these kinds of cases? Yeah. So,
2: initially, they might seem hopeless, but once you dive in, there's so much that we can do. Um, After talking to the client and the attorney about the case and what you know, the client's version of events is I'll review all the discovery, which is the material that we get from the district attorney and the police. I'll start figuring out what witnesses I need to interview and go, you know, go look at evidence and the scene if that's possible. Um, I like to create a very detailed timeline of everybody that was present throughout the day, the night, whenever it happened, uh, and start filling in holes on You know who was doing what, and I'll look for things like the the length of time that it took to call the police. Did the actual accuser call the police? Did somebody else call the police? Uh, Look at all that stuff. Um, I'll review the the same exam, the sex assault nurse examiner exam. And there are so many areas for that. I I think, like I said, that could be its own show almost. Um, But to go through that exam with a fine-tooth comb or that report and look for things that were done or not done, what was said by the accuser, um, there's just so much room for questions in that area. And... You know, I'll start investigating the accuser's background and see if there's been anything like this before. So you got to examine, you know, was there a motive? Has she done this before? Uh, questions like that. And so try to interview as many people as possible to find out what happened and try to put it together the entire time of all the events that happened. So hopefully that can really give you good clues and a good theory on what happened that night and what maybe the motive was. So that, how, that's kind of a, the summary of yeah. things I do and there's always more. And if there is physical evidence, absolutely look at that.
0: And how much interaction do you have with the attorney? Is this uh, um, on these you, cases quite a bit? I,
2: I spent a lot of time with the attorney just trying to hammer out what, what could have happened. You know, I, I report on everything I do, on all the people I talk to, the evidence I look at. So, you know, in in all cases, we're their eyes, ears, and legs for getting all mm-hmm. the information and the 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 data they need to do the trial.
0: And are the are uh, are the clients, the accused, usually in custody or out of custody? Um, it depends.
2: You know, sometimes they get arrested and they're still in jail and other times they can get bonded out. It just depends on the individual client's uh, financial situation. So obviously it's better when they're out because they can be more helpful and point you to different people and give you suggestions for witnesses and places and that kind of thing. But sometimes they're in jail and you need to visit them quite a bit to find out information
0: Some people on these kinds of cases, Jennifer, uh, ask the accused person to take a polygraph. Do you guys do that? You know,
2: sometimes. And sometimes they're useful and sometimes they're not. So I I have worked on cases where they've taken them. And, of course, if they pass, you know, we want to parade that to the DA and let them know. And then if they don't, for whatever reason... um, then it never happens, you know. Yeah. So it's
0: right. It, yeah, it you depends. can take a polygraph. I, I'm otherwise a lie detector test. Right. Um, that you don't have to disclose. If you have a if you have a client that is guilty or doesn't pass the lie detector test, then then that's uh, attorney work product, and you don't that doesn't right. have to be disclosed to anybody. Right. And
2: just because they don't pass, that doesn't mean too that that's correct. I mean, there are factors that can affect that.
0: So. Yeah, and I and you know I want to make a statement, and I know you said this earlier. This doesn't mean there aren't legitimate cases of horrible sexual assault, right? And a guy that says that he didn't do it when he really did do it, and all right. of that, and 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 that isn't to denigrate people that uh, are that call the police with a sexual assault claim. Right. And it's legitimate. These are cases that aren't legitimate, that the person is has a motive to make an accusation for whatever reason.
2: Right, right. And the, the thing that bothers me the most about that, though, is people who are not true victims make it that much harder for people who are victims.
0: Absolutely. That is absolutely true. And it um, particularly, and of course, as we said, once once the allegation is made, then that guy is, in this case, we're talking about men and women, that guy is a target for all kinds of further investigations. Right.
2: For the rest of his life, because it's possible that a sex offender label could stick forever if he gets convicted.
0: Right. And I'm, I don't know whether in Colorado, do, you, um, do they have to register as a sex offender? Yes. So if they're convicted of anything, yes. they would have to register.
2: Yes. And it, the fact. public doesn't know if it was, uh, you know, a he said, she said case or a violent predatory act on a child or what. It's just one label.
0: Yeah. 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 It's, um, you know, we've all known people that have been wrongfully accused and it's a, it's a horrible label. It is. It, it, just, uh, it just never goes away no matter what, no matter what you do. Yeah, and the label
2: is horrible, and the the bankruptcy and the destruction to families and relationships. I mean, it's, it's terrible for everyone involved.
0: So would you have any um, advice either for somebody that's accused or for an investigator that's investigating cases like this that we haven't covered? You know, I, I don't know if
2: I have any advice like that, but I would say there's always hope. I mean, you don't know what you're going to find in your investigation. So no matter how bad things seem at the outset, there's still hope and there's still a chance you're going to find something or even just one witness who will say, you know, she told me later that that's not how it happened or you just never know. There's there's always hope until trial. Yeah. <laughs> so it's They, I I get really excited about these cases and I don't mean that in a creepy way, but I just love working on them (laughs) because there's so many ways you can attack them and you really have to get creative and get out there and interview people and look at evidence and look at everything related to the situation. So it's,
0: I would just say it's not hopeless. Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. Um, so, one of the things we haven't even mentioned, Jennifer, is that sometimes people file civil claims after there's a conviction. Yeah. Have you run into that situation? Um, I haven't yet. So,
2: but I, I know that happens and I've seen it. Um, and those would be pretty awful, too. But then, if someone's sitting in prison for most of the rest of his life, I don't know what kind of settlement they're
0: counting on. Mm-hmm. Right. Um, although sometimes people have money, you know, yeah, or families do, or or whatever. Right. But um, yeah, or or if there, sometimes they don't get a serious sentence. You know, maybe the maybe the crime, maybe the jury kind of uh, came to a conclusion that wasn't the whole crime, but maybe a piece of the crime. Right. That they, they got didn't have the uh, indeterminate sentence.
2: Right. Or, yeah, like that case in Montana, I think it was, where the judge sentenced that man to, what, 30 days? Oh,
0: right. Yeah. 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 Uh, do you have any details on that? I don't have it in front of me.
2: Not really. I, I just know that it was outrageous, um, and that was a statutory rape situation, horrible, horrible for the victim.
0: And statutory rape means the, ch- the uh, woman is under the age of 18. Right, and can't consent. So. Yeah, can't consent. But yeah, I think they have a recall going on for that judge. I <laughs> right hope <now>. so, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Well, Jennifer, you've been a delight. Thank you so much for being on the show. I um, This is such a kind of explosive kind of a case that needs to be exposed, and I really appreciate you taking the time to uh, address it in this way. Yeah, thank uh, you. This was fun. Yeah, and special thanks to PI Magazine for their faithful sponsorship of this show. Guests for the upcoming weeks will be Philadelphia PI Fred Bloom, the Holocaust Searching for Survivors, New Jersey PI Lisa Reed, my client The Fugitive, and Maryland PI Lynn Levy. So please tune in again next week as we declassify more real stories from real investigators. It's PI's Declassified. I'm Francie Kaler. And thanks for listening. Thanks, Jen. Thank you. Bye. Bye.
1: You've been listening to P.I.'s Declassified with your host, Francie Kaler. Tune in every Thursday at noon Eastern time. That's 9 a.m. for you West Coast listeners. P.I.'s Declassified explores stories of deceit, mystery, and detectives unraveling the truth every Thursday at noon Eastern, 9 a.m. Pacific time here on the Voice America Variety Channel. It's the largest association of its kind in the world. CALI's main focus is networking, training, and legislative advocacy. If you need a detective in California, contact CALI at CALI-PI.org or call 1-800-350-CALI. For a national association, Francie's choice is the National Council of Investigation and Security Services, or NCISS. For over 35 years, the Council's primary mission has been to represent its members before the United States Congress and governmental agencies. Find the council at NCISS.org or call 1-800-445-8408. NCISS and Cali are great places to look for a qualified private investigator. Tell them you heard it from Francie on PIs Declassified.